Amen. Praise the Lord. I talked last week about how uh, certain people have greatly influenced my life, and certainly there's probably nobody that's influenced my life spiritually more than my father. I've had the joy of being able to um, grow up under his ministry, and it's a, it's a joy when you have a great father and also a great pastor, and they live in the same house. So I'm delighted this morning to welcome my father, Dr. Ross Rhodes, to come speak, and I ask you to give him a warm Harbor Rock welcome. Book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And the verse, if you'll see it, is found in verse 14. It's called, Wake Up! And they'll put that on the screen in just a minute, and we'll look at that. As we look at the book of Ephesians very quickly in a couple of minutes, it has six chapters. The first three chapters are about thinking about God and imagining what he's done for you. Very, very thick theology, especially in the first chapter. It speaks about our position in the heavens and how even before the foundation of the world, God foresaw who we're going to be. Very hairs of our head are numbered and our days are numbered and how he called us out of darkness into his light. It's marvelous music this morning. And chapter 2 gives you the history of the Christian life. Verse 1 to 10. You hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and in sins. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, his poem, like his rap music created in Christ Jesus, that we should walk in good works. And then chapter 3 goes further, how God has ordained that we live a holy life. But when you come to chapter 4, it changes. First three are theological, the last three are practical. Wherefore, I call that you walk worthy of the calling that you have been called to. So the last three are down to earth, what you should do, especially chapter 5, when it talks about marriage and so on. Well, in chapter 5 and verse 14, he uses this phrase, wake up, he says. Wake up, you that sleep, if you'll see it. It tells us to redeem the time and so on. It's a fabulous text, but listen, this was written to a very seasoned church. You're a young church. You're not even three years old. And look at this room. And look at what God has provided for you. And you've been generous and you give regularly. And that makes it possible. You can't have a church if people don't give because it's your church. And therefore, you're responsible for it. And God has blessed you. But this church is very, very strong. And yet something's happened to it. Not suggesting anything has happened to you. But just to use this first phrase. Because if you look at chapter 5. Verse 1 speaks about being a follower of God, walk in love. And then he deals with the matter of sexual impurity. And then he talks about things that he says, I wouldn't even want to mention when I preach. If you'll notice that. These things just should not even be mentioned or brought to the light. Uh, This church is in trouble. One or another thing has troubled it. And you come to chapter 6. And verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's possible to become theologically astute and well-taught and at the same time have a spiritual drain in your life that you're sleepy or casual or ho-hum or you take things for granted. Please never become a church like that. As a senior pastor now, I can say things like that to congregations because you get settled just because 
the light was carried from the Marriott to here. Don't let the light just flicker. Turn up the flame. You've got a new opportunity. New days are ahead. He tells them to wake up. Wake up. You could be just uh, insensitive. You could be insulated with all that God has done. You could take things for granted. Don't ever do that as a Christian. Stir yourself up. Wake up. Sleeping is as dangerous, particularly if you're driving or if you're under the influence. God forbid that you should ever allow that in your life. But you have to constantly be alert. I'm impressed as I read the scripture over the years that the challenge of the scripture is always to be ready and moving. For instance, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be settled and fixed. And that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the word seek is a great word in the Bible. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And God will abundantly pardon. Because that was the history of Israel. They'd have a great opportunity, a great more, a moment of blessing. God would deliver them from the enemies. Brought them through the Red Sea after 143s. Brought them out of Egypt. And yet they took it for granted. They forgot his mercy. They forgot his blessings. And I don't need to tell you that because you're not seasoned enough as a church and not old enough to, to appreciate that that may come. Just don't take anything for granted here. Remember that God is waiting to do, listen, exceedingly, abundantly, more than you can ask or think. You're just beginning. You can't imagine what God's going to do. I... I think sometimes if there's one thing I ought to repent of more, it's the fact that I don't take advantage more of prayer. When I get to heaven, I'm going to realize, although it'll only be for a moment because there's no sadness or sorrow or crying or anything like that in heaven. But I think just for a minute, since the Bible seems to give a little, a little opening between the memories of the earth and the memories of heaven, that I will think of all the things I could have had if I didn't pray more. All the times when God would have given me blessing and I didn't ask, I didn't seek him, I didn't humble myself, I didn't wait on the Lord. All those words are challenges not to get a little sleepy, but to be awake. Awake, you that sleep, he says to this church. Imagine, this is one of the most elite, educated, well-informed, well-taught church of any of the churches that Paul founded. He was the pastor of this church. And he gave this church to Timothy, who also got a little stale, if you know the first couple of chapters of Timothy. So Paul had to say to Timothy, the pastor, stir up the gift of God, which is in you, laying on of hands of the elders and the growth of your church. And don't be afraid of the fact that you're young. Be an example to the believers, which was the verse yesterday when uh, young Jacob graduated from eighth grade. This great challenge. To keep on keeping on. Promise me. No. Promise the Lord you're going to keep on and keep on. Will you do that? Say amen. Use the one word. Say wake up. That wasn't too good. That sounded like some of you were a little afraid. Come on. This is a great church. Say wake up, Ross. Wake up. Yeah. I promise I will. All right. The second verse, if you'll turn please, is found in the we call it the book of Jude, but it only has one chapter. Go to the end to Revelation, and then like the Jews read their Bible, they go forward. 
And you'll find this little book of Jude. Now, the book of Jude is kind of sad if you read it. There's 613 words in this little epistle. And it deeps, uh, it, it digs deep into some of the tragedies and some of the awful times in the history of the church. If you'll come down, for instance, in Jude, uh, the first chapter and the only chapter, uh, from verse 14, for instance, it's an Enoch. He was a man that the Bible says walked with God. The seventh from Adam, that's 13,280 years, that period of time. The history of Israel and the history of the people of God is the fact of lost opportunities when they could have been more than, than they were. And this is the promise of the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. When Messiah comes for Israel, Jesus the Lord comes for, for his church and we're evacuated out. After we're evacuated out, there comes that period, seven years of horrible tribulation. And then after that, the Lord returns with us and all the saints, and uh, there is what the Bible calls millennium, a thousand-year reign. And when that comes, God will prove again that he is loyal and faithful to Israel. But Israel could have been, and they weren't. And the problem was that they didn't build on their promises. They didn't build on what the prophets said. They didn't build on the covenants. There were seven covenants that were promised to Israel. The first covenant was the rainbow, that he wouldn't destroy the earth again by flood. There was the Palestinian covenant, it's called, that God said even way back then, I will give you the land. And 92 times in the Bible it's mentioned that God will give the land to Israel. In 1947 and 1948, after 2,553 years, the people of Israel, the Aliyah, they returned to the land. And they're a nation today, a strong nation, with 22 nations against them. God's hand is on them. The Bible says Israel is the apple of the eye, and the apple is the pupil. The very thing that he sees through, when he sees through his eye, he sees Israel, and they will be restored again but they didn't build on all that God had promised them. So they were separated. They declined. They were dispersed in 1947 and 1948 when the nation of Israel was born. Hallelujah for that. It's a great sign indicating that we're closer to the coming of the Lord than we ever were before. But you come to the end of this little book and there are little phrases that begin in verse 20. It says, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a message in itself. Uh, in English, it's called um, a reflexive. The subject does the action, but the subject is the receiver of the action. This morning, I shaved. I shaved myself. I dressed myself, and so on. Uh, it is something that is deliberate, intentional, and focused. So here, rather than just taking uh, God's salvation and God's blessing for granted, the writer says, remember all this history? You remember how the holy angels came and judged? Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember that time between Adam and Enoch? Do you remember all of that? Well, you need to be aware of that and cautioned that you don't take initiative for your own life, that you don't build yourself up in the holy faith. 
Uh, I mean, Paul does a magnificent job. I listen each week to the podcast. Thanks for making that possible. So while we're flying, I can hear him preach. I know what his thinking is, and I can see how he's guiding your church. He's a blessed pastor, a wonderful leader. Okay, that's fine. But between Sunday afternoon and next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, you're on your own. As uh, Bugs Bunny used to say, rot's a ruck. I mean, you, you have to be responsible for your Christian life. You hold a Bible in your hands. It's a Bible church. Great church. The Word of God. The pulpit is in the center. No uh, communion table in the center. No divided chancel. The choir is up front. You're all singing. That's wonderful. Well, when you open the Bible, God speaks to you. When you close the Bible, all you have is the memories that he did speak to you. And uh, every day, the Wall Street Journal said a couple of weeks ago, you receive over 3,200 and whatever, who cares about the total details, but more than 3,000 messages, not only on your electronic stuff, but television and billboards and radio and so on. Everybody's trying to buy your time or sell you something or challenge you to do something. Well, you listen to a message. I've been on about 13 minutes right now. Maybe I'll go another 13 and then we'll leave. But the point is, that's all you'll get unless you open the Bible yourself. Unless you study to show yourself approved unto God. It's called a reflexive. A workman not being ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You have the Bible. You have prayer. You have maybe Christian music and, and all the accoutrements, all the things that make it possible for you to grow. And if you don't take responsibility for that, then you're going to be in the dumpster because you're going to be weak spiritually. You won't be able to resist temptation. You'll make silly and foolish decisions that may affect the rest of your life. Every decision has a consequence. So you're on your own, as it were. And Paul can do his best, and the people can be praying for you. And this wonderful couple that greeted me, I didn't know that this was their last Sunday. You have this church as a beautiful family. Well, but you have to be responsible for that yourself. This is your church. How comforting it is to know that Pastor stands here and prays for this sweet couple who the husband is about to be retired next week. Well, he's got a great challenge. Everybody needs three things in life. Something to do, something to look forward to, and somebody to love. So now they have their uh, mother or mother-in-law who's, who's ill. And they have little grandchildren that they give their lives to. Uh, nothing is ever for nothing. Your life is to be purposeful. And so please be responsible for your own Christian life. This church will not be any stronger than you who sit in this pew, in this chair, in this place, in this miracle building. God has provided it for you. And Pastor Paul can do his very best, and he does. Very, very strong, devoted pastor. But once he gives the word, you are then to take the word, hide it in your heart. It will keep you from sin, and you'll be built up in the holy faith. How wonderful that is. Tell me, say, build up, Ross. That's good. Yeah, I needed that. I've got to preach four times a weekend in California, and that's the place of the fruits and the nuts, you know. California is a crazy place. So I'll need your prayers all summer long, plus the travel back and forth. I need to be built up. I can't just take sermons out of the freezer. A lot of people have heard me in this church. I've preached there two or three times a year. That's why they called me. But uh, I need it every day. 
You just can't rest on your laurels, as they say. You can't just just sit back and coast. No. Goodbye to days that are unguided and undisciplined. Wake up. Build up. All right, let's look at one more quickly. The Gospel of John. Will you turn there? John is a wonderful gospel. It's the first little Bible that you give to a new Christian. Uh, The story in chapter 4 is... uh, about the Lord Jesus waiting for the disciples to bring him lunch. They took the long way around. You would think that they would go straight up right to Jerusalem. But no, they decide to go the long route. Not the outer belt, but the, the off-ramp. And they go through Cana, which is a hostile area for Jews. And uh, it's called the area of Samaria. The Samaritans were certain kinds of people who worshipped God, not in Jerusalem and so on. They were not a sect, but they were not uh, as straight in the line of Judaism as it was in those days. And beside that, uh, they stopped at a well, which was always a good place. We came from uh, Chicago, uh, I guess it was yesterday or the day before, we stopped at that uh, uh, oasis. Nice place. That really has improved over the years. We stopped there. Well, the, the the well was an oasis. It was where you got off to water your animals, and and it was always a place where there were a lot of palm trees. The palm tree root goes straight down. Wherever you plant a palm tree, it'll find water. Regular trees, the roots go this way. So anytime you saw a palm tree in a desert, I mean sand and, and uh, unwelcomed area, you saw the palm tree, there was always a well there. So that's where you gassed up. So they stop at this well, which is Jacob's well, which is a deep well, 120 feet. Paul's been there. And uh, it's really a sacred spot because it was Jacob's well. But nevertheless, that's more information that you need. They stop there, and it's lunchtime. And the uh, disciples think they ought to stop and have a sandwich or whatever, a bagel. So they take off to get lunch, and he sits there. And while he sits there, this woman who's carrying water either for her household. Now, remember, uh, she has been married five times, and uh, she has a live-in, which probably was very comfortable because women uh, were rather marginalized in those days. So she has some companion, and she's carrying water. But you never carry water in the middle of the day. But she did, uh, and she had a checkered pass, so she didn't care who saw her. In the Roman world, uh, you could not, as a woman, walk without your husband or someone with you. Women were uh, almost discarded. So the fact that she's all alone and she comes to have uh, some water. Well, Jesus is sitting there. And a good way to witness is uh, to uh, engage in a question. And uh, he asks of her, give me something to drink. And she recognizes that he's Jewish and he's from Jerusalem and and the areas where there are not any Sumerians. And uh, so they begin to engage in this conversation. Well, whatever. It's a long story, and I've got to keep it short. As she's talking to them, the disciples show up and kind of saying, all right, Lord, before the sandwich gets to whatever, I mean, we're here. I mean, we've done this for you. There's a little uh, annoyance uh, in their attitude. Okay, let's eat. Stop talking. You know, we've gone a good distance to get this for you, the Lord. Uh, the Lord is impressed with what they're saying, but not really. 
And he said, well, look, that's fine for lunch. But my meat, my nourishment, what keeps me going is the will of God. And then he asks them to take a larger look than just where they are. This is where I'm going. If you look at the text in John chapter 4, verse uh, 35, don't you tell me there's four months and then the harvest. He uses an agricultural term. It's in November when he says this. So November is the time to plant. The planting is too late, I would think, out here in beautiful Wisconsin. It's a gorgeous state uh, because the planting is already done. We can see it, the little uh, green uh, uh, fuzz that's coming out of the ground. You don't plant now. Planting is over. And he says, this is the time of uh, planting. This is uh, November. So don't say it's not, uh, you know, don't, don't think of that because it's a time of harvest. And he said, what? Harvest, strawberries come up in April. What are you talking about? And he's talking about the fact that there is an opportunity at this moment to be harvesting. Uh, A time when you reap, a time when you gather fruit. There wasn't a worse time in Israel's history. There was no evidence. 400 years since anybody said, thus saith the Lord, or wrote anything down on papyrus. The temples were empty. Zacharias, when he heard about the birth of his son, he was lighting those candles in an empty room. The Pharisees and the scribes had dominated the people and kept them off beat, as it were, by silly little laws that they made up. People were in bondage and so on. There was no message from God. So to think of reaping a harvest, and we would say, Winning people to Christ. Let me take it further. Inviting people to church. There couldn't be a more difficult time. I go through my address book uh, uh, Saturday nights if I'm not preaching and uh, find other pastors that have started a church or I pray for. And there was a young pastor uh, and he's in California. Started a church about four or five years ago. He has about 150. And I told him about Paul and he and Paul at least... uh, from what I know, are praying for each other. So I told him I was going to be with this. Oh, he said, tell your son we're praying for him. But he's been there five years and has less than 200. You're only two years old, and you've got camp and DPBS and Bible study and Awana. You don't have a single program that a big church has already. You've got the streets and the street signs and houses, as it were, already built. You're a mature church in terms of programming. That's terrific. But listen, that's not where you ought to be now. You ought to look around and see the harvest. Don't say that next month or next year when we get bigger, we're going to reach people that don't know the Lord. No, now is the time. So he says, watch it. Lift up your eyes and look unto the fields. They are white or ready to harvest. Tell me, lift up, Ross. Yeah, get your eyes up. And the word means to focus. Uh, Julie has a camera and she's taking all kinds of pictures all the time. Because you should. You don't have to buy film anymore, so you can take as many as you want, right? Digital. How many don't have a camera like that? I don't say I don't have one, so I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. You got the point. This is what it means. You've got a lens. You're taking a close-up shot, okay? Focus it. You've got a long lens. You can take far away. That's the meaning of this word. Lift up your eyes and look. Look at the possibilities. Just think. I'm going to remind you again of where you are this morning and how this became possible. 
You didn't have the idea of this building. Uh, a sweet man and his wife, and I met them yesterday, they had this building and they knew about you and they saw the vision and you, you were offered the building and your half of the payment that you had when you had those two buildings at the Marriott and that school and the ideal location is downtown right here in the center of the city. You're a city church. You're planted here. I would guarantee, and I hope this isn't on tape, but it probably is, that the churches that I passed this morning, those churches that have been there for a 100 years, those great, beautiful, stone, Gothic churches, don't have as many people in them as you do this morning. That's not anything to brag about. It's to say that there's a new wave, a new movement, a new stirring among people who are sick and tired of being sick and tired and want a church that preaches the gospel and has fellowship and prays and reaches children. This is what you are. I can say these things because I'm a visitor. But you need to be encouraged. But now, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. It's white. There couldn't be a better time to reach people than today in this culture, in this financial uh, crucible, when the best economic advisors are saying we are headed for the cliff. The people who have the money and who plan money management are telling you that we are in a bubble. We have no reason to have the prices on real estate. We have no reason for the stock market to be up at 1500 Absolutely not. We've got a 17 18 maybe $20 trillion debt, which is impossible to pay. The largest debt of all the nations in Europe, don't equal our debt. 39% of every dollar we spend, we borrowed. That's insane. You couldn't live like that as a family. Let alone the disturbance in the Middle East. A man in the United Nations said the other day about Syria, our problems are beyond us. The Russians and the Chinese are backing the Syrian government. And these terrorists, you know, that they call them. Now, they're resisting against the oppression of some of these leaders who are dictators. Well, we know that they're strongly Islamic. And the spring is really not a spring. It's an uprising and fierce hatred of the United States and of Israel. These are very peculiar times. And we can't just say, okay, it's going to be business as usual. It isn't business as usual. And I'm trying not to frighten you, but I'm saying... You've got to get your eyes on the right thing. God wants us to witness. He wants us to influence our friends. He wants us to be praying for the lost. And he said that, Matthew chapter 9. Pray you for the Lord of the harvest, that he would send laborers. God will open the hearts of people as you pray. When Paul got to Ephesians, there was Lydia, and it says God opened her heart. You know there are people that you know the pastor will never know and can't reach. As his ministry gets larger and more influential in the city, like your choir is being invited to sing at that community service, why didn't they get the choir of the first this or the second that or the big that and the small that? They got you. It's interesting. The influence of this church is going to be really strong as the days go by. Well, remember, you have a catalyst of influence. Take advantage of it. Don't just say, okay, we finally got a permanent home, now that's it. No, no, it isn't it. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And the word field doesn't mean like the strawberry field. Or it doesn't mean dirt. It means your place. 
You know in the Bible where it says, and the liars shall find their place in the lake of fire? You know that verse? I'm glad they have their place, and they all can lie to each other. If they're going to mix with everybody else in hell, they're going to influence everybody else. That's a joke, but it's true. They shall find their place. No place for murderers, no place for people like that, but the liars shall have their place, okay? When it says the place of Christ's crucifixion was Golgotha, that's the meaning of this word. The field is your place, where you're planted. Listen carefully, child of God, where you work, the people you contact. I'll tell you a little story that's almost heartbreaking, and I'll go to the last point. Uh, We were in the restaurant yesterday morning, and the table next to us had a young man, about 15, and he was uh, 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 mentally disadvantaged. And Carol and I sat down and we prayed. And as soon as we lit up our eyes, this mentally damaged young man said, I just went to a Gaither concert, just like that, to me. I smiled at him when I sat down. I said, did you? He said, it was really great. You ought to go, like that. And I said, well, you love the Lord. He said, I sure do. Goodbye. And he ran away. (laughs) I went to a Gaither concert. He wasn't ashamed. He saw us pray. And I bet he said, those people are like the people at the Gaither concert. Those people are Christians. You don't know the impact and the influence you have. Get your eyes off yourself. There's nothing more boring than a selfish person. Get your eyes off yourself and your problems and the challenges and your fears. Everybody has a fear. At my age, I have a lot of fear. I hope I never have a stroke. I'd like to die in my sleep. I have three friends that are close to death right now. I may have to fly home for their funeral. I have fears. Of course you do. And I know God has given us not the spirit of fear, but of power and love of sound by. But I'm human as you are, right? Well, stop concentrating on the things that God will take care of you through every day, All of the way. Don't be afraid, right? But keep your eyes on the things that God is focusing on. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. That was the last thing he said. It ought to be our first concern. Forget lunch. I know you're here. I'm appreciative. But wait a minute. The thing that I am consumed by That which nourishes me, my food, is to do the will of God. Lift up your eyes and look on where you are. It's white and ready to harvest. All right? One more. Would you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21? This is a great, great passage. Great passage. And the word is found in verse 28. And the word is from Jesus. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. Say with me out loud. Look up. Look up. Look up. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author of finish of our faith. 
Don't look at your future. It's in God's hand. Don't look at your past. Say goodbye to guilt. Don't look to the left or right. You're going to compare yourself with people. Don't look in. You got discouraged and depressed. Looking unto Jesus. And he says at this point, look up. Now, why did he say that? Because he was talking about the situation. Stay with me now. I won't be long. The situation in that time. He tells them that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And Gentile control will be over Jerusalem. He's looking forward 38 years. In 38 years from when he said that, a man by the name of Titus, Google Titus, he came to the city of Jerusalem with his troops 38 years from when he said this, 72 AD, 600,000 Jews died. He tore down Herod's great temple, and then he had plows that went through that area where the temple was and sowed salt so there wouldn't be any ground that would be fertile. He totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, if you're pregnant, just pray. You can get out of town in time. If you're with child, woe unto you. And that's where all the people went down to Masada. They escaped and went over the Judean hills that they could run fast enough. But the Romans were fierce and ugly and awfully violent. He predicts the judgment of the city. And he said at another time, see that temple? That temple will be destroyed. There won't be one brick on top of another brick. Just as if somebody came and bulldozed this, this uh, property and made it all blacktop. But he spoke of his body too. He spoke of the fact that the temple would be leveled in 72 AD, but he spoke of his own body. And he said, he spoke of his body, that it would be buried as you sang and be raised again. Terrific, terrific, meaningful words. And he says, in that time, further, this is now the culmination of his word, uh, there will be signs in the moon and in the sun. It's a pastor by the name of John Hagee. He's in San Antonio uh, called Cornerstone Church. And he's been preaching on blood moons. Apparently, there are four times in history. He got this from NASA. He didn't get this from the Bible. Then he went to the Bible and compared it when the moon looks like it's red, blood red, and every one of those four moons in history came on Passover time, so it's assigned Israel. And there's another one in uh, 2014, next year. And these are, he thinks, and I embrace the idea, at least I don't know enough about it, that there will be cosmic changes, and, and the moon will appear to be like blood. Let's forget that because we don't understand it. Not forget it, but let's go to the next thing. And then uh, water movements. We could call it tsunamis. Uh, times when there's a disturbance in the sea. Well, that doesn't uh, seem too close, okay? But then he says perplexity of nations. That word perplexity is never used anywhere in biblical li literature with exception to this passage. He pulls it out of classic Greek thought and he inserts it in the scripture. The only time that word is used, right? The word believe, for instance, appears 92 times in the Gospel of John. So a repetition of a word means you should pay attention. This is the only time it appears, and it means that nations don't know what to do with their problems. 
And he says people will be fearful, anticipating uh, uh, things that are coming. Well, it's obvious to anyone who's not even a Christian, who's just a regular person with his own problems in life, as you look at the global scene, no news item is worthy unless it's global. If you look at the global scene today, people are frightened and concerned. I think that's behind social media. I think people connect to themselves and are nervous when they don't connect to each other because times are uncertain. And we know there'll be a time, it's already been said on every major network, where they have this uh, uh, global something that can shortcut all electricity uh, instantly. It comes over a city. I don't understand. I'm just telling you what I read. But this isn't prophecy teaching. This is the fact that we're in such a precarious, uncertain time that we as Christians ought to look up because our redemption may draw nigh. Jesus may be here at any moment. He can come at any time. He doesn't need global events or signs. There are no signs other than the coming of the Son of Man, like the sign of Noah when everybody had never seen rain before, or the sign of, of Lot. You know, they had no idea that in 24 hours they would become uh, incinerated. The judgment of the Lord, the Bible says, is as a thief who breaks through your door, has a ski mask on, has a knife to your throat, a thief in the night. Well, we're not waiting for any thief. We don't know when he's coming. But we're waiting for the Lord Jesus who comes from heaven. Say amen. And he can come in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Therefore, we should be aware of the fact that our redemption is nearer than we could possibly imagine. And because of the imminency, because of the proximity of the Lord's coming, we should look up for the Lord Jesus' coming. And when he comes, it says he will evacuate us, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Look up, child of God. Be cheerful. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, cheer up. I've overcome the world. And we sang it. More than conquerors. The word conquer is the word Nike. They stole it from the scripture. It means to go beyond. To, to be more than a conqueror. Not just to snap the tape, but to be in victory circle because we are with the Lord Jesus. Say amen. All right, I'm through. Thanks for the extra time. I told Paul I was going to preach less than he did and I didn't do it and I, I repent. Say amen. <laughs> Say amen to I repent. All right. The first word was what? Wake up. What was the second word? Build up. What was the third word? Lift up. What was the last word? Look up. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blessed church. And I thank you that Carol and I have had the joy of being here today with the family. But to stand behind this sacred desk, as it's been called, where the word of God is enunciated, where exhortation takes place, where the building up of the saints takes place, where your word is honored, where Jesus Christ is praised. I give you praise and glory in the house of God. Keep your hand of favor on this church. Surprise it with new days of miracle, of events that there isn't any human understanding or explanation. When they can say, to God be the glory, great things he has done. 
and use this church to reach the lost who are so weary and living such meaningless lives. Bring them to salvation. May this be a place where people are saved as well as built up in the holy faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.